Welcome to the Akashic Reading Podcast, presented by AkashicReading.com, the place where you can learn to access your soul's wisdom, or at least stop digging the hole any deeper. I'm your host, Terry Uktena, and today we'll be discussing how imagination isn't the best thing to rely on for working in the Akashics, and how to use meditation for better results. One of the more common subjects among students is imagination. In some instances, it's seen as a negative, and in others as a useful tool. What I've found over time is imagination, while neither good nor bad, is often misused and even misunderstood in Akashic work and so becomes a hindrance. The first thing to know about the Akashics is you don't need to use your imagination to work there. The Akashics is just as real as your couch or your car. If you don't have to imagine either of those to use them correctly, you don't need it for the Akashics. The door you'll see in order to access your Akashic room exists. It's not a metaphor, not an image, nor is it some hypnosis trick. It may look like something you've seen before, be like a door you've read about or seen in movies, or be something entirely different than the image you had in your mind. The concept, I'm not imagining this, is easiest to grasp for those who see doors which are completely the opposite of what they expected. It's a shock to the system to see something you wouldn't have come up with on your own, even in a dream scenario. However, for most people, the door will seem familiar, match their expectations of what such a door should be, or just feel right. This is not because they're imagining it to be that way, but instead, the Akashics using forms which get the point across most accurately and directly. When discussing this aspect of the Akashics, I use the term vocabulary. While we may think of vocabulary as being about words due to our early school years when we memorized vocabulary lists, there is also such a thing as visual vocabulary. This is something artists have used for centuries. It's the reason we can easily understand complex actions when described via stick figures. It's also highly developed in media, so we can get a ton of information from a simple setting or a movement of the camera. And of course, there's the symbolism in dreams, the archetypes of mythology and therapy, let alone all the gods and goddesses in spiritual pantheons. We each of us have a personal visual vocabulary, which provides us entire concepts or even layers of information and meaning with one simple image. As one of the main points of Akashic work is for us to gain wisdom and understanding from the endeavor, all the beings of the Akashics pull from this vocabulary to communicate with us. Think of this the same way you would if you wanted to speak to someone from a foreign country. The initial communication between you is sorting out what language to use at what level of complexity. Once this is figured out, even if it's a hodgepodge of gestures, pictures, and facial expressions, communication starts to flow. When working in the Akashics, if you're trying to imagine what is there, it's like asking to have a conversation, then ignoring the other person entirely and having a monologue in their general direction. On the other hand, because the Akashics is using your personal visual vocabulary, it can seem like you're imagining everything or it's all made up. This can be frustrating if you're trying to find answers to an important question or trying to move past a block or long-term persistent problem. However, if the student sticks with things and repeats the lesson or meditation more than two or three times, they'll start to notice a change. 
images, experiences, and beings will stop being quite so familiar and start taking on visuals which are more specific and precise to the message or the meaning of things. It becomes noticeable items and settings are no longer the way the student would have imagined them to be. Students can speed up this process easily by the use of their hands. When in the Akashics, you have physical form. Usually this looks like you, or a slightly improved version of you, and so you will have hands. Reaching out in the Akashics, touch whatever it is you're curious about, whether that's a piece of furniture, an animal guide, or a structure. I wouldn't recommend just reaching out and touching beings like librarians. It's considered just as rude there as it is here. The information we take in through touch resists imagination. We may imagine something is smooth, but then touch it and find it's textured and warm. Let your fingers do the exploring and you'll quickly realize how little of this is about what's going on in your head. Another common stumbling block to working with the Akashics is our general understanding of what it means to meditate. Most people come to think of this as stilling the body, getting into a relaxed state both physically and mentally, then quieting the mind in order to receive information. Unfortunately, while the description seems simple enough and is presented as simple, it's one of the most difficult forms of meditation to practice successfully, and for many can become not only an insurmountable hurdle, but a negative experience which feels like spiritual judgment. Luckily, there are other means to reach a meditative state. The most readily accessible is movement. Instead of turning off the body to focus inward, this style of meditation uses the body to engage the part of the mind which interferes with the meditation process, thus allowing wisdom to flow. In movement meditation, you choose a movement which is rhythmic, repetitive, and can be maintained without strenuous effort over a certain period of time, usually 30 to 60 minutes. Common examples are long walks in a park or neighborhood, hiking non-strenuously, washing dishes by hand, biking, jogging, swimming, knitting, hand quilting, and so on. In any chosen activity, the rhythm, like the rocking of a chair, is calming and soothing while the action requires the problem-solving logic functions of the brain to focus on the task at hand and keeps us from injury. These two factors set the conditions for the meditator to drop into what is commonly thought to be a daydreaming state. Getting the mind from one state to another takes an average of 15 minutes. For most people, this transition will be an experience of what the Buddha described as monkey mind, where the problem-solving aspect of the person's mind not only starts working through whatever is most pressing at the moment, but also seeks to take advantage of unscheduled thought time to consciously process bigger issues or pending emotional matters or anything else it thinks might be relevant, even if it's not. However, these are usually chewed through to a resolution, dead end, or pause within 15 minutes, plus or minus. At the same time, the rhythm of movement has created a relaxed state. Commonly, the transition from problem-solving into daydreaming has occurred when we move to investigating what-ifs, replaying conversations and social scenarios, even playing out what our life would be like in the future. We've been taught daydreams are just figments of our imagination, which exist only in the completely sealed-off safety of our minds. The thing is, our daydreams do have reality as a means of communication. In childhood, we unlearn and forget this, and therefore come to think of our heads as closed systems. We think things only get out or in our head when we act to make it so. To see something, we must look. 
To express something, we must act. As an aside, this is one of the main reasons why subliminal messages are illegal in advertising. They play on our erroneous assumption we control what gets in, thereby getting message in under the radar without our consent or acknowledgement. Product placement in media is skirting the boundaries of this. Now, this is not to say our being taught the notion of a closed noggin is wrong. It's not, and in fact has a purpose. We're meant to focus on this life and not be distracted with extraneous things. In preparing for this embodied life, we agreed and even desired to have this brief respite from constant and instantaneous communication so we could explore ourselves fully with minimal disruption or negative consequences. So thinking we're a closed system is a good thing. However, it's not really true. As we knew when we were children, our daydreams are a conversation between the embodied reality we're experiencing and the greater reality of the world beyond this microcosm. This is why some people will have what they consider serial daydreams, where the action seems to keep going on after they've returned to daily life. It's as if the daydream continues while they're away and they're dropping in at a later point already in progress. Most likely it is, and they are. This is why deep and important truths about ourselves and the world around us seem to unfold from our daydreams. It's not all about our subconscious, if such a thing actually exists, but about an ongoing conversation happening only marginally in linear time. So what I'm saying is daydreaming is an Akashic meditation. What you experience isn't all in your head any more than what is said in a conversation over dinner is completely controlled by you. If you want to check this out for yourself, next time you're daydreaming about something, try changing some random aspect. Try changing the setting, the flooring, the ceiling, or the sky. Try changing what the people are wearing. You'll find you either can't, or the change is momentary and returns almost immediately to what it was before. It's as if you looked at the person you're having dinner with, told them you didn't like their eye color, and then tried to change it for them. If you can change something in the scenario, then it is something you brought with you, something in your head. If it's something you can't change, then it's part of the conversation. It's either something the other party is trying to tell you, or it's part of the place. Either way, it's not irrelevant, but has meaning, and you should pay attention. One more note. Most people expect to see or experience fantastical things in the Akashics right out of the gate. Some do, but it's fairly unusual. Just like in dreams and daydreams, everything about our Akashic journey or meditation is a conversation. The language used is visual and auditory, physical, and sometimes there can be taste if the situation includes eating and drinking. This means how things look, feel, and sound have meaning. The point of any conversation, here or in the Akashics, is to express meaning in the best, clearest, fullest way possible. This means the message in a journey or meditation is coded in ways which will make it as clear and easy for you to understand as possible. I mean, when we're trying to get something across to another person, we don't speak in a language we know they won't understand. Heck, we'll move away from vocal language altogether, progressing from hand gestures to pantomime and even into interpretive dance if we get frustrated enough. Beings in the Akashics are no different. If the images and experiences you have are so out of your range of experience you can't comprehend them or stay in the meditation, then what's the point? Most people find over time, as they become more accustomed to this type of work, 
to the visual sensory form of communication in the Akashics, the vocabulary, the experiences, the beings, and possibilities expand into what we would consider fantastical. To convert daydreaming into a meditation or journey, all that needs to be done is to be aware when you have moved from normal awareness into daydreaming, then start guiding the process. Guiding can be done by listening to a recording of a meditation or by going through memorized meditation steps. Most people find that once in the daydream state, it takes no effort at all to direct the process. For some people, the classic form of meditation works, but they can struggle with being too relaxed and therefore fall asleep. In this case, I recommend making the process a little less relaxing. Make the room a bit cold. Sit in a way which is not conducive to sleeping, or even stand. Others can have a problem getting deep enough into the meditative state and so can sense the process happening, but aren't able to get visuals. In this case, making themselves tired prior to the meditation can be helpful. Rather than meditate at the beginning of the day or when fully rested, a person who consistently struggles with this issue should wait until it's time for bed or their system has begun its natural slowdown. They should then be more amenable to receiving the information. Alternately, they can meditate after having done physical exercise. Wearing themselves out a bit, running off the excess energy, allows the endorphins to slide them into the daydreaming state. However you achieve it, and there's no best or even better way, the daydream or meditative state is your gateway to the Akashics. And that's all the time we have this week. Next week, we'll be looking at what a soul book is and what roles they play in the major religions and spiritualities today. If you're interested in knowing more, check out my website, akashicreading.com. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please consider supporting it by subscribing on Patreon. You can find all my offerings and get regular updates about what I'm working on at patreon.com slash Thanks. Bye.